It is March 10th, 2021. This is the QTR Podcast. Today's podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout those people out, and we're going to get on with the show today, because we got a lot to talk about with Mr. Charts. First and foremost, this podcast brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver provider over at JM Bullion. There is a link to JM Bullion in the podcast description. It is the only place I buy my gold and silver bullion. They have been in business for over 10 years, or I think about 10 years now. They've done $3 billion in sales, billion with a B. They have a great reputation, and QTR podcast listeners have their very own rep. There. So if you don't want to look online, you don't want to deal with the website, you want a personalized touch, you can email Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at jmbullion.com, and she would be more than happy to help you out. I like these guys. They turn around my orders quickly. They always have good inventory, good reputation. My listeners seem to enjoy them as much as I do. Very happy to shout out JM Bullion. This podcast also brought to you by my brother Sang Lucci over at the Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus Steam Room. If you know options. You know Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus are a household name. It's that simple. For one reason too, the Steam Room has been a wonderful piece of software that does a great job pointing out flow in the options market. If you follow options, you like to track options, even if you don't know how to do it yet, you're still learning, you want some insight into the options market to try to help you with your trading, try to give you a little bit more visibility into the market, there's no better piece of software to do it than the Steam Room. It is affordable. They are offering a 30-day free trial. So if you hit up Charlie or Wall Street Jesus or Sang Lucci, and they're all in the podcast description, or you can hit them up on Twitter, tell them QTR sent you. They'll make sure you get a chance to try out the software for free. Check out my friends over at Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. Fucking OGs. Some of the first guys to ever do it. They were around when I came on the scene in 2012. So it's been almost a decade now, believe it or not. This podcast also brought to you by my homeboy, George Gammon, over at Rebel Capitalist Pro. If you like the macro end of this program, but you want a little bit more information and a little less fucking around, George Gammon's Rebel Capitalist Pro is a great place to go. George has teamed up with Lynn Alden and Chris McIntosh to really offer what I think is a very useful uh, service. In addition to their forums where Lynn and Chris and George talk about their personal holdings, um, great place to find ideas and to bounce questions off of people. In addition to that, they also do live Q&As. And so if you see the world through the same macro lens as we do, and you have some questions you want to bounce off some people about some things to try to figure some shit out, George Gammon's Rebel Capitalist Pro is a great place to do it. The link to Rebel Capitalist Pro is also in my podcast description. Check them out. Give them a play. Show them some love. This podcast also brought to you by my homeboy Pete Hedgetus over at The Trader's Path, which is one of my favorite day trading communities. If you want to surround yourself with people on the daily, get brand new ideas and watch lists and investor education and live streams on a daily basis, Pete Hedgetus over at The Trader's Path is a great place to do it. Pete's an honest guy to do business with. He is genuinely looking to do the right thing and to help traders along in their journey down wait for it, the trader's path. (laughs) Like what I did there, Pete? Getting your money's worth, aren't you, brother? This podcast and the links to all Pete's shit also in my podcast description. So you can check out Gammon and JM Bullion and the trader's path and my homeboy Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. Links are in my podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by Traders for a Cause, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, 
Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus, and some patrons that have been with me for a while. Where's the list? I don't have it because I'm not prepared. I never am. 250 episodes in, still can't get my act together. And that's how it's going to be for the foreseeable future. My newest patrons, Chris H., William Herbert, Bill Brewster, thank you so much. Uh, Lucas Dera, Andrew, and Andrew, I knock off two years in uh, in one shout out there. My homeboy, Doug Brimer, and Jim Thomas, Josh, and Adam Rossi, thank you guys so much for your support. James Poulos, thank you, brother. Some patrons that have been with me for a little while longer, like Jay Pow and Will J and Hakon Wilhelm, thank you so much. Uh, my buddy Duke Matlock, thank you for your continued support. My friend John Bergmans and uh, Will and Dylan Davis, Mary Ruth, thank you so much for continuing to support the podcast. This podcast has a three-drink minimum. I am not an investment advisor. This is not investment advice. I hold no licenses, no registrations. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell any security. We are not investment professionals, and this is not investment advice. We're just having a conversation you have any and all questions, you should always run them by your personal financial advisor, who, if you need a reminder, is not me. All right, with that being said, let's get started. All right, happy to have with me today Mr. Tesla Charts. It's been a long time since you've been on the podcast. How are you, sir? Chris, I'm great. Thanks for having me back. It has been a long time, I would say too long, and so it's uh, wonderful to be back. always enjoy my appearances on your show. Yeah, well, thank you for that. Um, <laughs> man, it, you know, it feels like an interesting time to talk to you. I want to, you know, a lot of times I don't book my guests super well in advance. I sent you a text yesterday and I was like, what are you doing? You know, let's just, it's time to talk. A lot of times I feel like my intuition or the market presents me with opportunities for who I'm going to bring on. And, you know, I text you and I text Mark uh, yesterday and said, well, we got to line up sometimes to speak to one another just because things feel interesting right now and and everybody knows you as Tesla charts on Twitter and obviously that's your uh, your namesake you're a Tesla guy or you know an anti-Tesla guy or whatever but Tesla's the uh, the name you identify the most with but Tesla is really part of a very interesting broader move that's going on here where we're seeing this crazy rotation from uh, tech garbage, I guess would be the best way to put it, uh, into value and the NASDAQ, you know, whipsawing back and forth and Kathy Wood is in the news still every day for ARC for the wrong reasons now and man, what a time to keep an eye on the market, isn't it? Yeah, it really is an amazing time and uh, I agree with you, it does feel like change is afoot, one never knows whether it's a head fake uh, or a real turning point, you know, calling turning points in the market is a pretty dangerous thing. But you're right, it, it does feel like the bid has been sort of uh, deflated a little bit in some of the more speculative names. And uh, we're seeing a rotation into sort of more value plays like commodities and oil uh, and companies that actually produce free cash flow uh, and so on. But a very interesting time to watch the market. You know, with interest rates, there was a pretty, seemed like a pretty decent 10-year auction just went off before you and I started. Um, that seems like might be pretty healthy for tech growth names, but you're right. Um, Kathy Wood has been in the news a lot. Tesla has been in the news a lot. And uh, while Tesla is in my name, uh, you know, Tesla Charts is how I founded the account. I tried to broaden beyond Tesla a little bit, but it's kind of like, you know, uh, what's the famous quote? Every time I try to leave, they pull me back in. Uh, Yeah, and you've said, you know, it's the poster child for Zerp absurdity, which it is. 
Now yes. it just feels like bubbles on top of bubbles on top of bubbles, right? Coming well, off of uh, – go ahead. No, I would say ironically Tesla's kind of gotten a little boring in that area compared to some of the other craziness we see in the market. And I think the inclusion in the S&P 500 um, – may have played a big role in that um i think if you look at what's going on with GameStop today you and i were talking just before you started uh, recording it's been really i think it's been halted six or seven times just since i ate lunch um and then you see what's going on with bitcoin and uh, all the craziness there and SPACs and celebrities and SPACs. and so it kind of just feels like in a surprising way tesla has become boring which i think is potentially very dangerous for the stock, um, although it's had a pretty impressive face ripper the past 36 hours, if we're being totally honest. It does feel like there's euphoria layered on top of euphoria, though, and you brought up exactly what I was going to bring up, which is on top of the NASDAQ being where it already was, which we can talk about that and why I think that move was just artificial in and of itself, which I think is possibly why we're really in for a potential large whipsaw back down in tech stocks. I think the entire move off of the lows uh, in 2020 was helped along by strategic option buying, um, of which, you know, outfits like Goldman and SoftBank have already admitted to. So if they've just put a fake bid under the NASDAQ and the entire tech index is a giant air pocket as a result of Delta hedging, then I think, you know, we could really see some shit going forward. But on top of that, Layered on top of that nutso several sigma deviation from the norm, you have the SPAC boom, you have, you know, the celebrity SPAC boom, you have, you know, all the things that you mentioned. You have Bitcoin, which is now being put on corporate balance sheets. So it's a strange feeling. Doesn't it feel like, you know, every time the market kind of gives an inch, people want to take a whole other mile? Yeah, it is a really strange phenomenon. And I was just chatting with, um, I believe, our mutual friend Grant Williams a little bit about. I know you just had Bill Fleckenstein on your show a few days ago. It was a great interview, by the way. I love Bill and, and love the work that he and Grant are doing. But there's this whole move towards virtual and no connection to tangible. And, and in Grant's really great podcast that he just released with Anthony Deaton, I'm not sure if you listened to it, but um, they spent a lot of time talking about how more and more, yeah, maybe for young people, and this is starting to sound like two old guys, you know, shooting the breeze with each other on a Wednesday, but, you know, for the generation that's coming up, their whole life is virtual. And I think the right. coronavirus pandemic and stay-at-home orders only accelerated that. Online learning, everything is virtual, no actual human contact. And so I think for the generation coming up behind us, it's perfectly natural to bid up assets that have no tangible value, no connection to reality in a way that is sort of like a giant greater fool's trade. They're basically, as Ben Hunt would say, they're trying to front run what where they think the crowd is going to go. And, and buying accordingly and with all the sort of digital crypto that we're seeing now and um, you know what's Bitcoin trading at today 55,000 somewhere in that range um, you see GameStop swinging between uh, the day range on GameStop today as we sit here is 172 to 350 um, these things aren't really priced you know that the I would say in this bubble this mania will be marked by a vast deviation between price and value unlike right. we haven't seen in the past and the breadth of it it's everywhere yeah uh, and even, literally every market even when you see you know it, it was a good uh good observation that everything is going virtual because you saw these non-fungible token uh things now where you can buy tweets you know you're buying somebody's cool. tweet from them where they sign it and you get an authenticated 
uh, crypto token with the tweet. And, and these tweets are going for millions of dollars. And it just seems like there's just so much hot money just pouring into things that don't, at the end of the day, don't have any value in the real world. They just have digital value. And that's strange. I mean, the idea that somebody would want to pay $2.5 million for somebody's tweet, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure that makes sense to me. I try to compare that in my head to somebody paying $2 million for a Jackson Pollock, uh, you know, where they can physically, you know, physically touch it and hang it in their home. And, you know, whereas you pay $2.5 million for a tweet, like, what are you getting? You're getting... I guess you're getting the right to say that it's yours, but other people can also have access to it. I guess similar to the way other people can also have access to Jackson Pollock prints, but I, I can't, I can't square the circle in my head as to yeah. how that makes sense. You know, there, like you said, there's the argument that look, we're just getting old, and the new generation does exist in the virtual world, and so we're missing all of these. You know, we're missing Bitcoin, and we're missing buying people's tweets and maybe we just don't get it but there's also the argument too that this younger generation is the one that doesn't get it because they've never lived through a bubble burst where what's standing at the end of the day the foundation the tangible assets the the book value you know the net asset value of what you have in terms of whether you're buying a you know piece of art or a, or a company that's all you're left with right you're left with the scorched earth uh, after a giant pullback. So who's wrong? Is it is it us or is it yeah. the younger generation? It's probably a mix of both. And I, I, you know, I forget who said it, but your your market view is shaped forever by the period in which you entered the market. And for me, it was just around the, the beginning of the global financial crisis where I had accumulated enough wealth as an executive and had enough stock in the company, you know, ownership in the company stock to be material and to be watching the market. And and my very first experience where the market moves materially mattered to me probably were in the sort of 2007, 8, 9 timeframe. And so I'm seared by that. And the way I would sort of rephrase what you just said, and it's one of the phenomenons that I, I sort of study and feel, which I, I, I call defensive pessimism. Um, that's I would consider myself a defensive pessimist. I consider the worst case scenario, and if I feel really great about what would be left in that case, where the wreckage is all around you, um, I'm fine, and I could sleep well at night. And so for me, I I focus on raising the floor of my net worth. I don't focus on the ceiling. And so for me, it makes a ton of sense personally, based on sort of when I entered the market, to convert business success into some land, you know, that I'd be able to pass down. To my kids because no matter what happened in the stock market i have title to that land and as long as i could keep paying the property taxes i'm going to own it um and so that raises the floor of my net worth i'm more focused on raising the floor than i am worried about how high i could push the ceiling and i think you know for today and you know all manias are kind of marked in this way i don't again i don't want to sound too you know just because i don't understand it doesn't mean it's wrong um, but it's probably a bit of both i think there is a real and substantial shift from the tangible to the virtual uh, on top of the marginal investor today has never lived through a bubble burst. Right. And, and you could have the bubble burst, but the things that we're talking about still be essentially tangibly valuable in the post bubble world, because there's a real shift going on underneath your feet. And if you think about it, I spend my working day, you know, running the business um, that I do with my partner. Um, I spend it almost all on Slack uh, Twitter DMs, text messages, 
the occasional unscheduled phone call, I probably average one meeting a week now. That's over. Like the, for me, at least, the scheduled meetings um, with a time slot that begins at a certain time and ends at a certain time and everybody fills the whole agenda, that's over for me. And I bet you it's over for a lot of people in the, in the sort of post-COVID world. And I think that's one of the more tangible changes to what the definition of work is. I'm just interacting with people virtually. And some of my best friends I've never met in person. Um, and I don't know that I ever will. Yeah, exactly. And there's something nice about that, too. I mean, we've never met in person. I don't even know yeah. your name. And, you know, we talk because it's not important. You know, what's important is the, the content and what we're, what we're bringing to light. And It's funny you say that because if you called me and said, hey, TC, I need a favor, I'd drop everything for you. Oh, is that right? Yeah, thank you. Huh. How about that? Well, I mean, you're my friend, right? I mean, we're friendly. And you said, hey, I need your help. I, I don't know who you are. I mean, I know I know your name because you're public, but we've never met. Um, but, of course, I would try to help you out, right? Well, I and mean, I've confided in you as well in the past. Yeah. And so you know you know that I trust you to some yeah. degree. And uh, and also, I've you know, for the, as long as we've spoke to each other a couple of years, I, I just don't really care. You know, it's not, yeah. uh, it's not important to me. And th- that's one of the interesting things about kind of democratizing the uh, the investment world too is I mean you obviously get all this chaos like we saw with the GameStop thing but you also get this great content guys like you know Grant Williams and Fleckenstein they don't need to have a CNBC show to get their thoughts every day regularly on what it is they want to speak out about I mean it's the same with Peter Schiff right he's got 400,000 YouTube followers now um, because he's active and he puts his shit out there, and uh, it, it's it's really valuable what's happened. It takes the power away from the major networks and kind of forces the content creators or the analysts or whatever you want to call them to get on a level playing field. And I think that's I think that's a, a, an enormous benefit for the market. As long as you don't get canceled, um, and that's where I think we're heading into a bit of a bit of a scary time. You know, I, not to get political because I'm actually kind of apolitical, but watching what's occurred with uh, with the big social media companies and, and who gets to keep a platform. So you take a guy like Peter Schiff, like he's built his own platform, right? Um, and congrats to him. And it's very effective and I admire it. I observe it. I try to learn from it. I don't agree with um, most of what he says. I agree with some of what he says, not all of it, but I feel like he has a right to his platform. But if YouTube decided they didn't want him on their platform anymore, a lot of the value that he's created personally for himself and for YouTube, because he drives ad revenue, um, would dissipate overnight at the flick of a switch. Um, Elgato Mato on Twitter, who's a famous sort of Tesla Q turned uh, COVID questioner, had his account suspended. And I've not yet seen an explanation for it. He built up a huge following, spent a lot of time on Twitter, drove a lot of engagement on Twitter. Presumably that created value for Twitter, but they just decided they didn't want him on Twitter anymore. Um, there comes a point where in the new digital virtual world, who gets to decide who can participate? It's kind of like who gets to decide who can be in the banking system. It's a very, very powerful thing and very scary. And so it's something I'm keeping a very firm eye on. Like you can imagine that somebody would just decide that um, being against Elon is being against the environment and being against the environment is being against the planet. And so you don't get your voice. And TC, your Twitter account, which you've worked very hard to create a, a good following, for the better part of three years, it just just disappeared. The world would go on. Nobody would care. Um, I wouldn't have a voice, right? I would just be yelling into the void at that point. Um, but they could totally do that tomorrow, and, and they have uh, in many cases. Now, it's easy to say, oh, you know, uh, I'm not pro-Trump, so I don't need to worry that, you know, Trump got canceled off of Twitter. I, 
and I, I understand the arguments for it. Believe me, I do. But I'm far more concerned about the, the slippery slope nature of it and what it means. Who gets to decide, I guess, you know. Um, Jack gets to decide. Yeah, it's un, it it's, it's enormous unchecked power that has just kind of slipped in through the back door, not unlike the central banks, right? Yeah. But it's a by, you know, I talk about this all the time. I mean, when there's a bipartisan consensus to not question the Fed, that should scare the shit out of everybody because, you know, the two sides of the aisle, they argue about everything. And if there's one thing they come to a consensus on, well, then you know that whatever that is, whether it's the Fed or the National Association of fucking bagel manufacturers, that they're going to have pretty much unchecked unilateral power. And it feels like unless the government starts to realize this with social media companies and not just the right, but the left needs to understand it, too. Um, well, because that, the, the right might be in power again someday and decide to wield that same power against the left. Right, right. I mean, the, exactly. the precedents we're setting are very dangerous. I, I, I happen to think, you know, I have my strong opinions about politics and about Trump, but I, I view the, the what's happened in isolation, and I think forward to what it could happen if, it, if the, you know, if let's say Biden becomes unpopular and then the right wing gets back in and they decide, okay, we've set that precedent now. If if you want to keep, you know keep in good favor with the government, you're going to start canceling people on the left. And that this, I don't think either side should be, but that's just, I'm just sort of a, yeah, probably like you, more libertarian. And, and I just concerned about sort of the, the overreach because I didn't vote for Jack. Who voted for Jack Dorsey? He doesn't right. hold an elected position. Yeah, he um, just fucking showed up. Yeah. So is what it is. He's our overlord now. And, and you know, it, there's a lot of, lot more sophisticated thinking going into this space um, than, than what I can contribute, but it's certainly something that I watch. And it scares me. So back to your original point, you're correct in that uh, if you can build your own um, rodeo, right, you get to ride the bull. And so Grant Williams has built an amazing audience, and Peter Schiff has built an amazing audience. You've built a great audience. You know, a young kid like Edwin Dorsey over at the Bear Cave, through hard work, is building a really great audience. It was one of my favorite reads. Um but that all can go away at the flick of a switch if the people in power don't like what you're saying. And so I do think that it's very possible that, you know, Elon Musk has reached escape velocity and um, he has become synonymous with, you know, environmental justice and environmental warrior. And this that's all nonsense, of course. But um, they could decide one day that, you know, Tesla Q should be um, should be thrown down the memory hole and we'd be gone. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm surprised that hasn't happened because there's, Me too. Been, there's been some vibes over the yeah. last couple of years where I've thought like, all right, this is going to be it. This is going to, you know, where he's, I felt like he has really felt emboldened and yeah. certainly he's got the support of Dorsey. You know, they're both big Bitcoin advocates. I mean, they're all kind of on the same page together. And so what's to stop him from, you know, calling Jack and just saying, Hey, like these guys are oh. like, like you said, it's a slippery slope, right? Now they can find justification I was reading a th thread the other night, I forget where it was from, but somebody had gotten banned from Reddit for just posting something pretty innocuous about the Constitution. And yeah. and the the moderator had said, oh, this is a call to violence. And I read the post oh. and I'm like, no, it isn't. You know, it's like that, that gray area between what's acceptable, what's not acceptable based on policy versus what can be claimed as not acceptable by kind of twisting these mental gymnastic pretzels 
uh, like, hey, this could be, or, you know, hey, look, everybody agrees that what Elon is doing is good. It's good for the environment. He's, you know, helping out climate change. So we just can't say anything bad about him. And that's dangerous. I mean, that, that reminds you of like fascism, right? Yeah, it's coming. I would say it, Elon has his own peculiarities and his own behavioral excesses that make it a little bit more difficult for him to be the case where they would really do that, I think. If he had sort of played his cards a little better, although I think he's incapable of doing it, um, things could have gone that way for sure. I have, for example, I, I, I can't prove it. Um, I have zero doubt that Jack feeds information about various anonymous FinTwit accounts to Tesla uh, and to Elon. Uh, what do you I'll base be shocked. It on? I mean, that sounds completely unsubstantiated unless you can it, tell me it, what you're basing it on. It's I and don't say so, information and belief. It's I'm it's have PTSD. It's from a combination of things. Sued. So things that I I can't share um, because I don't want to get doxxed. But very like for example, there's a whole suite of reporters that won't DM anybody on Twitter, um, but they will text you or they will call you. Uh, Is I that right? Personally, had that experience. Yeah, a lot of people don't trust um, Twitter. There has been a friend. Well, I mean, I give you an example without naming names, but a friend of mine had believes firmly that he was doxxed because an insider at Twitter leaked his cell phone. Hmm. Um, so we'll see. I think time will tell. There's going to be all kinds of lawsuits in the next decade where there'll be all kinds of interesting discoveries. And our friend uh, Aaron over at Plain Sight, I'm sure, will uncover it if it's happening. I he's treat fucking my DMs, relentless, isn't he? <laughs> he's relentless. I treat my DMs as though they're being read. Yeah, and um, and you know what? As I'm thinking about it, I wouldn't. You know, I I pretty much pretty much do the exact same thing. I don't think I would put anything super sensitive in in a DM. Not not because of like. Uh, you know, any other purposes other than just what you're saying. Like, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, that there's some policy somewhere we have to monitor to uh, to prevent, you know, anarchist groups from forming or uh, hate sure. speech from, from brewing before it hits the public forum, you know? I, yeah. I guarantee you there's something that they can point to and say, this is what allows us to read your DMs. Though I can't prove that it has happened and it may not be happening. I'm just, I'm just. Yeah, I agree. It. Look, I, I just, if you pushed me against the wall and said yes or no, I, I, I would go yes. But that's just me. I'm a bit, pardon me for being a bit paranoid. I've only had people sitting outside my house observing my family because I tweet. Um, and, you know, when you, in fact, and when you look at the, uh, FBI treatment of Mark Ahotis over his tweets. You know, right. it's, it's not a very it's not a very long pot to go from what we know has happened to to what we suspect might be happening. No, and there's a lot of instances where if people would just take a look at history, they would realize that a lot of what people describe as conspiracy theories, whether it's finance related or it's politics related, we've either already done it in this country, or you know, we're already. Uh, you know, we've already been there or, you know, we've seen horrible examples of, you know, mismanagement by uh, all different types of bodies, whether it's the government, whether it's companies, whether it's uh, Congress. I mean, there's just there's so many there's so many moving parts to all this stuff and so many different little outs that companies can use to kind of do whatever they want. And, and you know, the Google thing is a, it's a great example, too, because. If you are a content creator, like you kind of have to always have in the back of your mind that you have to hedge with your content. Like you can't maybe like there, I'm sure there are things that I wanted to say that I haven't said because I thought that it would get me kicked off of Twitter or, or it would get me yeah. kicked off of YouTube. So now that I'm hearing myself say that out loud, that's kind of baffling. 
right? I guess you do kind of have to, and that's that's weird because that feels like a very nefarious conditioning of the public discourse that's kind of almost happening in the background, right? Exactly. Well, I mean, the news yesterday about this uh, security startup, I think it was Verkata, I don't know, I think, that had um, 150,000 security cameras hacked. And they found out that they have these super admin accounts that basically can watch any security camera you want in hospitals and mental institutions and factories, um, you name it. And the most sensitive thing, you're not even aware that you're being filmed. And then somebody, not like at the company that bought the camera, but at the company that sold the camera, they can basically access their entire network. And um, hackers broke in and, and got thousands and thousands of security camera footage and all of the stored video. Um, I've seen screenshots of um, video inside a Tesla service center. Um, and so it's pretty scary to think about. That's some unknown. I'd never heard of the company before. I'm sure you hadn't either. So if that's possible, imagine what's possible with, with companies like Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Or HickVision, or, right? When I when I was bring up the thing that HickVision has, you know, which is a China-based company, that they have cameras that have been manufactured that are in the Pentagon, people always say, oh, you're conspiracy theorists. What do you think they're going to do, uh, hack into them and, and watch the Pentagon? Yeah. I'm like, yes. Yes, you know, I like, do think that's what they're going to yeah, do. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think you have any clue how fucking, like, actual nefarious forces work, right? It's nice yeah. to believe, hey, these are our friends and that there's not, you know, decade-long uh, espionage projects going on. But the the fact of the matter is every third day we find somebody new that turns out to be, oh, this Harvard professor was a Chinese spy. Oh, this New York, you know, police officer was a Chinese spy. He'd been, you know, what was the woman that was Fang Fang, I think her name was, that was, that was banging Eric Swalwell and the other ghoulish... Uh, California politician. By the way, how do you not know something's up if you're that guy? Jesus Christ. He was like fucking 350 pounds. I mean, he was enormous. And this, you know, woman is just hanging all over him. Like, come on. You know, let's, you want to give yourself some credit. I, I know that, you know, maybe it's been a while since you've gotten the attention of a woman, but at some point, you, you got to have a reality check and be like, you know, what, what's going on? This 21-year-old co-ed just wants to bang me for no reason? Like, maybe something's wrong here. I don't know. But out, out of, I think out we've of all been guilty of ignoring that at some point. Out, out of precautionary risk, I'm going to uh, I'm going make sure that I don't get canceled. I'm going to uh, express ignorance of the details of the particular situation that you're referring to. Well, who cares? I already <laughs> talked about it. You know, if, if, if I, I, I piss somebody me. off, we're both getting banned now because you're on here. So I'm bringing yeah. you down with me. He didn't hang up on him, so therefore he should be canceled too. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, but it, in back to that um, security hack, that the scary part that jumped out at me in the Bloomberg story. This is not, you know, some fringe right. reporting. This is a Bloomberg story. Um, these cameras have facial recognition software built into them, so like in real time, you can see who the people are that are being filmed. Um, it's kind of very Orwellian. Um, it's kind of scary when you think about it, and. You know, if you, especially if you live in a big city, the number of times uh, in a day, you know, pre-COVID when you'd go about your daily business that you're being recorded would probably shock Oh, my shock God. People. You ever challenge yourself to get from point A to point B without without appearing on camera? Have you ever done that? No. You'd probably get put on a list if you were able to do it. Dude, it's, it's not fucking easy at all. Yeah. Even if you yeah. hop in your car and you just start driving, you think, well, maybe I could get from here to here without getting tracked somewhere, you know, like – there's always something like the little easy pass sensors, the ones that aren't even easy pass. They put like sensors throughout the highway too that read your uh, little easy pass thing as you're driving under them. Just, you know, they don't collect a toll, but they're just there. So every time you go past one, it, you know, checks off 
that you're in a certain location at a certain time. So if you look, you can see these sensors kind of hanging over the highway in certain spots. And it's just crazy. Like you said, if you're in a city, if I want to go from, you know, VIP Delhi on uh, 13th and Sansom, and I want to try to just get like to Rittenhouse Square Park, which is just six or seven blocks away without appearing on camera, you can't do it. You can't do it. You go underground, you go to, you know, try to walk the subway, you can't do it. You know, there's cameras down there. You try to walk out in the middle of the city, you can't do it. There's cameras outside every business. It's wild. Even even just being out in the suburbs, you can't do it. Every fucking place has got a camera now. And here, you know where else you see it is all over Twitter. Because you see, like, every time some fucking guy goes and gets McDonald's and trips coming up his own porch steps now and throws the McDonald's in the air and, you know, it's a big America's Funniest Home video. Everybody laughs and points and uh, laughs yeah. at his misfortune. I saw this video yesterday, which is why I'm bringing it up. We see every one of those now. Every time somebody fucking, you know, steps on a rake and it comes back and hits him in the face somewhere. It's just like there's unlimited content of people doing dumb shit because there's cameras everywhere. Yeah. And it, this is, gets back to what we started the conversation with, which is this move to virtual. Um, you know, everything is a television show. Everything is seeable online. You don't have to really engage. You can just go and, you know, watch footage. Uh, everyone has a doorbell, uh, a doorbell camera, right? Um, and what are they called? And they're all hooked up together. And, you know, and so when you, it's probably never been easier to be a easier time to be a policeman. Um, right. Yeah. Uh, so. You're wearing a but camera too. Stuff. If you're a police officer. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. Exactly. Full body camera. So and everything is being recorded. You just, I just assume it. And if I leave my house, um, I just assume I'm being recorded. It's probably easier way to live. Where do you think we are in, the Tesla cycle. I made a video the other day talking about after it hit 900 or whatever, which, by the way, I just can't say it enough. You know, pre-split is like $4,500 a share, yeah. which is just yeah. absurd when you think about it. I mean, we're talking about a trillion-dollar market cap. This company had a $60 billion market cap like 18 months ago. Uh, and so this this artificial, what I think was an artificial move higher, uh is real and it you know it really took hold and it really a lot of people really got brought along with it i think too i think uh it became a big tailwind and retail kind of joined with it but now you know what's going on are we at a point where you think that people are actually going to have to start to look at the value proposition even one of my friends who's a bull tweeted out the other day they're trading at you know an ev to revenue of nine Toyota, Volkswagen, BMW are all at one, 1. 1.5. Uh, and he was a bull. And he's suggesting, well, by that, you know, maybe there's 60% downside from here still. Yeah. Um, or do you think do you think maybe it just turns into the Japanese stock market and it just stagflates for a while? So it's a great point that you make, which is why, you know, the recent down move from Tesla from 900 to, I think it was probably 540 at the lows last Friday. You didn't see me getting too excited about it on Twitter I was more focused on ARC, which hope we can talk about it maybe in the second half here. But um, at $540 a share, you're still, what, $2,700 a share pre-split? And, you know, the 420 funding secure tweet was at $420. I mean, we got a long way to go before we have anything close to a reasonable closing of the gap between price and value of the company. The 420 was, tweet was at 420 pre-split. Exactly. So uh, you know what I mean, which would be like we're talking share. about eighty dollars yeah. a share now, essentially. Exactly. So eighty-five dollars a share. So um, at five hundred and forty dollars last Friday, I don't look at that number and see five forty. I see twenty-seven hundred, just right. like like you do. And at twenty-seven hundred dollars, that's an insane price for Tesla. So am I thinking that like somehow the drop from nine hundred to five forty was meaningful? No. 
Um, so the question you asked is, where are we in the story? Uh, I'm probably simultaneously the best and the worst person to ask this question. Um, I would say things are beginning. I think the real big problem Elon has is uh, autonomy. Uh, the cars will never be anything more than level two. Their own lawyers, again, back to our relentless friend, uh, Aaron Greenspan, who uncovered through Freedom of Information Act request correspondence between uh, attorneys from Tesla and the California, uh, some California regulators. Uh, and the questions were pertaining to Tesla's marketing claims around autonomy, full self-driving, all you know, capitalized full self and driving, as opposed to just what you and I would believe full self-driving means. Um, and this attorney basically admitted in writing that the system as envisioned will still be a level two driver assist. Um, and Elon has been claiming since forever that, you know, Tesla's just on the cusp of level five robo-taxis. I mean, uh, he's been selling full self-driving uh, as a suite of features since October of 2016. We're coming up on five years um, since he proclaimed it. Um, it's almost 700 days since Autonomy Day in 2019, where he was, I put out a video on Twitter this morning, he was specifically asked, does feature complete for full self-driving mean level five autonomy with no geofence? And he replied immediately, yes. That's never going to happen. I could say confidently that the cars that exist today, the Tesla cars that have been marketed as being autonomous ready, level five ready, they just need to fix the software, they will never be level five. And there's like three very solid reasons that nobody can counter. Well, two of them are basically facts and one is is 99.9%. The first is the cars don't have a sufficient level of redundancy in critical um, structural features to satisfy the definition of level five. Um, so your steering can go out and um, there's no redundancy, for example. The second and easiest one to explain to people is the sensors don't self-clean. So how can you have a robo-taxi in uh, New England in the winter when there's salt on the road and dirt and, you know, your cars get dirty? Um, I, I'm sure we've all experienced when you back up with your backup camera in the winter, if you drive in sort of the, the more colder parts of the U.S., um, that camera's all clogged and you have to go out and sometimes wipe them down with a paper towel if you want to be able to use your, you know, your rear-facing cameras for, for driving in reverse to get out of your garage. Um, those, the sensors on Tesla cars don't self-clean. can't ever be level five. And then they don't have LiDAR. And, you know, Elon can say LiDAR is a crutch. 99.99% of experts in autonomy think LiDAR is a critical sensor to have in your suite. And Teslas don't, famously, because Elon believes you can get it done with cheap cameras and cheap sensors. Um, and I just don't think he ever will. I would say that Tesla is a laughingstock in, auto in autonomy today. They're dead last. You know, I saw Kathy Wood on CNBC repeat the same old... I would call them provably untrue things, to be polite. Um, this whole <laughs> this whole con about um, t Tesla has all this billions and billions of miles of data, that's all nonsense. Um, they have a level two driver assist program that he has been selling as near level five for the better part of five years. And um, it's going to come back to bite him. Like, I just don't see how he escapes that. And I think at some point it does matter because if he hadn't done the robo-taxi um, lie. Um, he raised $3 billion of capital at a time when he was insolvent uh, based on that uh, back in 2019. And I don't know how he ever fills that promise. At some point, it's going to matter. Like people are buying what they believe are, you know, futuristic cars that will self-drive for thirty-five dollars or $40,000 when in fact they're just getting a poorly built car 
that has some cool tech in it um, that won't ever drive itself. Uh, and so I don't know how he squares that. And then the other big thing is uh, really fascinating to see what the lawyers say to the regulators versus what the marketing people and what Elon says about Tesla. So another big revelation, I think, a, a scandal is, you know, they had this recall on the center screens because the center screens were failing. And a lawyer for Tesla said in writing to the NHTSA that these were sort of um, – these have a five-year lifespan and were always meant to be sort of replaced like you would a brake pad. Um, wearable, you know, um, they wear down after a while and they have to be replaced. This is the critical function that, like, you use to control the car. Right. Um, and so when people complain, it's funny when I, I watch people, I read everything about EVs, of course, and people complain about the nature of the touchscreens for non-Teslas. Well, that's because every other automotive manufacturer produces to what's known as automotive grade. The things they put in the car, other than brake pads and sort of, you know, uh, oil filters and things like that, but the things that are permanent to the car have to be produced uh, automotive grade. And the screens in Tesla's aren't. They're literally, you know, iPads stuck to the dash with glue. And so, like, of course, they're going to, in the beginning, feel very different than every other automotive experience you've had. But their own lawyers admit that these, these you know, accessories weren't designed to last the lifetime of the car. And shouldn't therefore Tesla shouldn't have to recall um, because you know this is just another part that can be replaced. The it's, full it's self amazing. driving thing is really the one of the most egregious. I mean, <clears throat> then I, I think back to the roof tiles thing, and you know it appears yeah. it appears he's kind of gotten away with that. I mean, it's been fucking six years, and he's not producing those things as he displayed them, however long ago that was. And they kind of fit in this accordion folder of all these other things that he's promised and talked about. And you can't even tell when he's being serious or when he's joking because some of the ideas are so stupid, putting cold rocket thrusters on the fucking roadster. And, but, I mean, the, the full self-driving thing is very real. That's a very real, uh, you know, bait and switch is what it appears like to me. I mean, like you said, they've been selling – the notion of, and I still see fucking people posting about. It. I paid the extra five thousand, so mine can be FSD ready when the time comes. It's like, who wants to tell them? You know, who wants to tell them? The fucking software doesn't exist. Okay, it's like, it's ten thousand now. He's raised the price of this guy. Just, is, it's amazing. I mean, that is an incredible boondoggle. An incredible yeah. boondoggle that's been going on for years. And then at the end of the day, not only do they not have it. But they're not even leading in terms of people that do have it. Like you said, like, oh, all right, they hope for maybe level two at best, right? And we're not just pulling this shit out of our ass. I mean, there's data to support that, aside from the very practical arguments that you just made. Uh, you know, yeah. companies like Waymo are addressing those problems. They're taking it very, very, very seriously. They know that there is a super long line of work that has to be done in order to get to level five and that it's, you know, five years, 10 years off, whatever it is. They, you know, they have conservative projections and they um, are operating according to them and trying to do things up by by the book and safely. And Tesla is just this, you know, they're just, all right, anybody that wants the beta he tweets out, anybody that wants the FSD beta, let me know. And people are fucking putting their car VIN numbers on Twitter in the thread. Oh, here's my yeah. VIN. You know, like all these Tesla users, it's like, what is going on? And this is just, I, I just don't understand what the hell is taking so long for, even if the customers don't wake up, what the hell is taking so long for 
people, you know, it's like the Federal Trade Commission. This is right in their wheelhouse, right? This company is selling a product that doesn't exist. Won't ever exist. Right. So what is the holdup? Like, what do you think it's going to take for people to notice? Stock price. So again, if, if, if I think? did, well, if I did, like I've obviously given this a lot of thought, you know, what the we, I, others who are skeptical of Tesla get right and what they would get wrong. Let's start with what we got wrong. We got the stock price way wrong. In fact, you couldn't be more wrong on a stock ever than we were wrong on Tesla. Full stop. First to admit it, lost money. I'd never go long it, so I'm not making any money on it. I stopped trading it um, shortly after my last appearance with you on the show when it started taking off after the sort of COVID bottom. I didn't understand it. I stopped trading it, and it's gone up 10 times from there, and then some, uh, much to my amazement. So I'm the first to admit, always have admitted, got the stock price completely, totally dead wrong. Um, another thing that I would say we got wrong is they're selling more cars than I thought they would. There's two reasons why that is. Uh, one is I underestimated the strength of the support for EVs in Europe. And basically the European market is mandating that people build EVs and that's kept a bid under the demand force Tesla vehicles that's higher than I would have thought. And also I radically underestimated the depth and speed of the support from the Chinese Communist Party for Elon Musk and the speed with which they got that plant up and running and, and the volume with which they've been able to push through that plant. Um, and I do think that part of the increased demand is because of the full self-driving bait and switch. People think they're getting something that they're actually not. They're buying the future when in fact they're just getting, you know, and all of the, the service issues, you know, I thought that people would, wouldn't put up with the poor service quality, the roofs falling off, right. the wheels falling off, the central consoles <laughs> failing. Um, That's bricking thought, the car. That's bricking the I, car, I, you know, three or 100%. four years after people in the car and they're like, well, I still love them. Yeah, I love my Tesla butt is like the most – it's become, you know. So we got all that wrong. What did we get right? Um, we got full self-driving right. Um, solar roof, solar city, 100% right. The solar roof still exists in name only, I think, because it was a very dangerous lawsuit still making its way through the Delaware courts. And if that lawsuit didn't exist, I suspect that it would have shut down solar city in its entirety by now. Um, I, you know, the, the, the quality we got right. The, the guy basically makes cars in a tent. It's, it's just unbelievable. So when you look at Machine Planet on Twitter's flyover footage of the Fremont factory, this is, this is not a factory that reeks of ESG. Um, you know, I, we got the, the fact that the company was facing a deep solvency crisis correct um, because Elon himself has admitted that on several times during the sort of peak of the Tesla Q frenzy, he was weeks away from bankruptcy. Um, but, you know, he was ultimately able to um, bluff his way through it, and, and he's nowhere near insolvent now. He can raise money at will, as Mark, uh, our mutual friend um, Mark reminds us, um, at, at $2,700 or whatever they are now, at seven, back up to $3,500 um, pre-split, they can issue as much stock as they want, and people will buy it. So he's never going to go bankrupt. Um, he's reached escape velocity. Um, but we were right on the core elements of what this is and what it isn't. I mean, he has no battery advantage. He basically, the cars go as far as any other automotive manufacturer can make them go. Um, he has no technology edge. Um, he has a cult. The cult is very strong. Um, but I mentioned earlier that, you know, one of the bids under the Tesla vehicle demand is this movement in Europe towards a rapidly sort of 
rapidly changing the the, the drivetrains of, of their vehicle fleet towards uh, BEVs and plug-in hybrids, this is a very fascinating thing that's happened in Europe. So when the government mandated, basically mandated, that EVs will be adopted, and they did so by imposing very harsh penalties uh, on on the automakers uh, if they didn't sell enough EVs. Um, what we saw is every single traditional automaker came to market with really great, compelling products, and Tesla's market share collapsed. So that hasn't happened in the U.S., for example, and Tesla, as Kathy Wood said on CNBC, uh, enjoys a very strong market share in battery electric vehicles in the U.S. So my read of those two data points is as follows. Absent government mandates, consumers don't flock to electric vehicles in reasonable numbers to justify Tesla's valuation. With government mandates, every automaker can produce, easily produce better products for lower prices than Tesla. And they have motivation to do so because um, they still have their profitable internal combustion engine cars to sort of fund it. Um, and Tesla loses market share. So I, I would propose to you that the worst thing that could happen to Tesla is the Biden administration conceives and implements the Green New Deal and basically forces all automakers to begin to switch to electric vehicles in the U.S. because they've learned how to make them in Europe. They've demonstrated that they're superior. They've taken share from Tesla, and they would just take the share from Tesla here. You know, Tesla is priced as though it's going to dominate electric vehicles, and electric vehicles are going to dominate all vehicles. Um, neither of those things is true. And to the extent that the government makes electric vehicles become dominant, it's going to hurt Tesla. It's going to prove the lie that Tesla has some moat some competitive advantage, some head start. It's all nonsense. So when you see somebody from Wall Street talk about Tesla has a, a durable head start, I will give them one one kudos for sure. They are better than the traditional automakers of that software. Uh, and Volkswagen's Q1 2021 struggles with, um, with getting their new BEVs into the market in Europe, uh, I think is proof of that. So Tesla does have an advantage in software, as you would expect. They've come from Silicon Valley. It's part of their DNA. And so good for them, tip of the hat. Um, they're better than GM and Ford and Volkswagen at over-the-air updates and, and you know, continuously improving their software. I'll give them that. Um, but besides that, I mean, the traditional automakers make a better car, goes just as far, costs much less. They have an existing infrastructure to support the servicing of that car. You know that they're going to honor their warranty. They're not going to play games with goodwill and trying to, you know, force everyone to an app that doesn't work and then nobody can answer the phone. Like, Twitter's just filled with people complaining about their Tesla service quality. You don't see that with Ford or General Motors or Volkswagen, Toyota, Honda. Um, when they decide to come and play, they're going to win. And look at Volkswagen. I, I had a great DM exchange with Kevin Muir over at the, the Macro Tourist um, talking about Volkswagen. If Volkswagen spun out its EV business, what would that be worth? And if you think about it, Volkswagen is the fastest growing maker of electric vehicles in the world. They own a big chunk of quantum space, which is this innovative salt-state battery SPAC that is trading at you know four or five times the IPO price. They own um, they own a charging network in the U.S. Like, um, they they have an amazing market presence in China with deep roots, uh, and they're going to overtake Tesla probably this year, if not next year, in total electric vehicles sold. Um, they own Audi. And Porsche, so you could take the EV offerings from those companies and wrap it all into this, you know, new spin-out. Um, Volkswagen itself is worth probably 100 billion dollars. 
Tesla's worth, as you said, up to a trillion, probably 700 billion now, 750 in that range. Um, there's no way if you carved out the Volkswagen's EV business and put it next to Tesla that you wouldn't value Volkswagen's EV business at some multiple of 100 billion. Um, and then you could sell the traditional business to a private equity firm because it produces a lot of cash. Right. Um, there's no reason why if Tesla's worth, Tesla's truly worth 700 or 800 billion dollars, Volkswagen's worth many multiples of 100 billion. Um, now I, I do believe that one of those two uh, measurements is a little inflated, and we'll come back to Earth at some point, but who knows when. So as far as where we are in the cycle, I think with each passing quarter, as the Ford Mustang. E as Toyota brings its electric offerings to the market, as solid state batteries begin to get developed, you know, Volkswagen is the, is the development partner of CATL, which is the biggest battery manufacturer in the world out of China. Like there's nothing about Tesla that Volkswagen doesn't do better except for maybe software. So you've been following the, uh, the Kathy Wood saga here over the last couple of weeks. She was obviously in the news all day, every day, because of her, you know, the uh, ARC flagship fund's uh, incredible performance. And now she's in the news because as the NASDAQ starts to slip a little bit, um, sure. you're starting to see some rotation uh, out of her funds a little bit. And I see from your feed that you've been watching it pretty closely. One of the most astonishing things I've been seeing with her is this propensity when uh, things fall, and she even admitted this in an interview the other day where she said, oh, we're going for pure play names. This propensity when things fall to, to rotate out of liquid, you know, well-known tech names and into these very, very speculative names. Some names that she's buying stock in, I mean, I know that she hasn't done any equity research on because I know that they're bona fide piles of shit. And I mean... yeah. And I mean night and day, clear, just absolute dog shit companies. I'm not going to mention anybody by name. I don't want to get sued. But, I, I mean, I just uh, – what what kind of analysis is going on over there? And what what do you think of that strategy? This kind of like so doubling down every time the stock falls. Can't last lot, forever, right? Lots to unpack there. I, I, of course, have been studying – Kathy Wood and Ark Invest quite closely because of her role in the whole Tesla saga. Someday I might write a book if writing a book is still a thing. So I'm keeping sort of detailed notes along the way, little tidbits, things that I observe. And of course, I've been very interested in Kathy Wood and I've been studying her firms and her five ETFs um, that that are publicly available under the Ark name. It's a very fascinating thing. So, you know, to fill the audience in who maybe aren't following this as closely, um, if you take the flagship sort of ARK Innovation Fund, ARKK, and you break apart their one-year returns. The biggest contributors to the one-year returns are Tesla, of course. So she got Tesla right. Oh, lost, lost you there for a minute. I'm sorry. The last thing I heard the last thing I heard you say was that if you break apart the returns, there's yeah. Tesla, which she got right, and then I didn't hear yes. anything else after that. No worries. So can you, you can hear me now. I'll yep. launch back in. Um, so Tesla and Square were her two biggest big name winners. And Square is run by Jack Dorsey. Right. And Square actually counts 100% of its notional Bitcoin trading as revenue, uh, which is a whole other story for another day. We can talk <laughs> about that. Um, they're day, and then they're day all... trading for profits. Yeah. It's a day trading um, no, firm. It's a prop shop. No, no, no. If you buy Bitcoin on Square or you sell Bitcoin on Square, those transactions, the notional is counted as revenue, not the fees. Oh, God. No, this is a this is a whole other show that we yeah, can talk about. Um, literally, their revenue growth, they their their revenue for Bitcoin trading is X, and their cost of goods sold is basically X. 
but they, the headline number that they beat revenue. Like literally, if you bought $100 worth of Bitcoin for you, Chris, on Square, they would count that as revenue. That doesn't seem um, right. It, it, well, it's, it's, it's an accounting loophole that they're exploiting. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, a few other names, but beyond that, the sort of four through 15, the top contributors, are all these very small e-liquid names where she owns a huge share of the outstanding available equity. And it's gotten to the point where, like, and so I would argue that's sort of bidding up her own book, right? Those returns aren't real in the sense yeah, that she couldn't get she couldn't get the price that's listed today if she had to sell any meaningful size. Now she publishes her trades every day, which as a as an ETF she's obligated to do, so that's great. Everybody can see her trades, but there's a little bit more to the story here, and and um, I think Bloomberg may have broken the story, but a, a guy on Twitter. Um, Pete DiCaprio actually tweeted about this back, I think, all the way back in 2019. They cut a deal with an entity out of Japan called Nikko, N-I-K-K-O, uh, and there's a fund called Nikko Arc, which basically mirrors her fund, and they're about half her size. And so, in fact, when you look at, you know, it's an affiliated fund of some kind. I think there's an investment by Nikko into Arc, and then Arc advises the Nikko Arc fund, but they basically replicate the same strategy. And so, I had a friend. Uh, who I won't name, but sent me a DM, where basically between ARK and Nico across their different funds, they own more than 10% of 28 companies. They own more than 8% of 40 companies, of which this person estimated 29 are relatively illiquid. Yeah, that's wild. And so, like, this is a real issue. Now, our friend um, Edwin Dorsey wrote a nice piece in his, uh, in his newsletter, The Bear Cave, about this, which is basically, as you mentioned, when trouble comes, historically, this has always been her pattern. She views her relatively large investments in liquid names like Amazon, I guess, or pick your favorite, um, PayPal. I know she's been selling down PayPal a bit. Um, she kind of uses that as her bank. And so she will sell, when she faces redemption, she'll sell down those liquid names and then by definition, even if she doesn't buy the, the liquid names to support the price, they become a higher and higher proportion of her, of her holdings. Now, this is a story that is well known and has played out in the past. And, you know, she would argue that the stories in the past don't apply because those were mutual funds and she's an ETF. And there are structural differences in the mechanics uh, by which ETFs redeem that are different than mutual funds. But it doesn't change the following point. Everybody knows what she owns and everybody sees what she trades. And you've been around Wall Street long enough to know that, you know, in times of stress, that's not a very good thing. Right. And unlike other sort of um, hedge funds, for example, um, that they only report their filings, you know, 45 days after quarter close, what you're reading in the 13F may not be relevant today. Um, but the whole world sees what she trades every day. And so it's a dangerous game. Look, I think she's going to survive, um, but she's had a pretty big drawdown uh, from 160 down to below 110 in, in, in the ARC Innovation Fund. Back up today, you know, the last couple of days, she had a big face ripper yesterday, probably 10% gain. Um, but that's, I think, generally a very interesting strategy. And then our Jim Janos posted a really fascinating chart on Twitter that I believe he got from Brad Munchen, where basically if you look at the correlation between ARC Innovation Fund and a three times levered QQQ, it's, it's the same Yeah, I saw issue, that chart there. They're almost identical. Um, almost they lie on top of each other. And so... This is a game that's been played before. She's played it very well. You know, she's grown assets under management from something like eight billion to over sixty at the peak. She's had some outflows the past 
week or two. She'll probably survive this episode, but now everybody knows. Everybody knows her positions. Everybody knows that that's a potential vulnerability. And at some point in a true market dislocation, I, I suspect that they'll begin to probe. Um, you know, and even even if they don't, even if people don't, you know, necessarily use that for nefarious purposes, as you're talking about, it's still a very questionable strategy just due to the illiquidity. Like we're talking about, you pile your fund and then this other fund that you're talking about out of Japan and you're getting into these names where they're, you know, they're not trading a lot of shares on a daily basis. And so, you know, what happens when you, you and your affiliates are 25 percent uh, owners of a company and, and, you know, and something bad happens, you know, I mean, this is, we're talking about the NASDAQ falling 5% off highs, I think over the last couple of <laughs> couple weeks here. Right. I mean, this is not like Hard, seeing, hardly a bear market. Yeah, yeah. We're not seeing a bear market. We're just seeing a little bit of turbulence. I mean, she had this incredible tailwind over the last year. I don't know whether it was a result of a gamma squeeze. I think it was in the NASDAQ and in Tesla. That's just my analysis. I don't have proof for that other than what SoftBank and Goldman have come out and said, but I think that this, that whole move was artificial. Say it was. That's her you know, getting very lucky and catching the, uh, that tailwind, but shit, what happens if we see a 10% drawdown in the NASDAQ? I mean, forget about these little, you know, oh, 3% today, 2% yesterday. I mean, what happens if we see like two or three big moves lower yeah. in succession? Arguably, the, the gate is going to swing that much harder in the other direction, right? And that's the thinking. And, you know, she's grown to be large enough now that I think she might even be systemic to the markets. Um, and so it's, it's a fascinating thing. You know, I, one of the ways that you can do the analysis is, um, you know, I, I have some experience in this area in my, in my private world where um, you might want to trade out of a large illiquid position and you would do sort of a, hey, 10% of the average daily volume um, VWAP, you know, volume weighted average price for the day. And you instruct your traders to do it that way. Well, you're, you're moving the market when you're doing that. So if you were crazy and she had to get out, and let's just say you were going to do 20% of the average daily volume, for, for some of her more concentrated names, you're looking at 20, 30, 40 days to get out at that elevated selling. Um, and so when people say she's had great returns, she's had great returns. I mean, I'm the first to say she got Tesla right. I got Tesla wrong. If you had invested with Kathy Wood and not listened to me, you would have made a lot more money. Not that I give investment advice. I'm not a registered advisor, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but Kathy Wood got Tesla right. Um, but a lot of her source of returns is from people following her own trades, Warren Buffett style, right? Oh, Kathy Wood's long, Teladoc. Uh, I need to get long it too. So it's not just her and then this other fund in Japan. It's all the people that are copying her that are on the same side of the trade. If she has to get out, she can't, right? And so, yes, the mechanics of it are different than mutual funds, but I think that's just a distinction without much of a difference. If you are a forced seller into a bidless market, you're done. Um, now, I don't think the doom loop is going to happen now. I, I've observed it. I caught it early. I've been following the flows and tweeting about it, and it's fun to tweet about. Um, but it is a real issue. It is an interesting one. Um, and I think it's a real dilemma for actively managed ETFs that, you know, promote themselves on TV a lot. It works great on the way up and the same phenomenon in reverse is very, very dangerous. Yeah, I think that's very well said. And uh, I think that rounds out the conversation nicely. Listen, man, TC, I want to thank you so much for coming on, brother. It was uh, good getting an update from you on where Always. everything stands. And uh, let's do it again. Let's catch up in a couple months. How does that sound? <laughs> 
anytime, as you know, I'm just one text away and, um, and always happy to join. And I really appreciated the uh, conversation. Good to get, good to get caught up. All right, brother. I will talk to you soon. Thank you so much. That was the one, the only Tesla charts. Uh, good. He came on today. Been a little while since we talked to so get an update as to, uh, what his contentions are for the craziness that we see here, and especially since it involves Tesla quite a bit, and it involves, uh, you know, Kathy Woods in the news every day. So I wanted to make sure that we had him on today and got his thoughts. All right, fools, I am out of here for the day. Got a couple of good interviews coming up in the future. But for right now, I'm out. Peace.